this week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we wrap up our adventure in Acts with shipwreck, events on Malta, Paul arrives in Rome, and Paul preaches the gospel in Rome, and then we dive back into Genesis with genealogy of Seth. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or on your favorite podcast provider. Lutheran Public Radio Choir with the hymn, Dear Christians, One and All Rejoice, as we come to or near the end of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel, we will be reminded that in all Christian preaching, this distinction being maintained, the gospel should predominate and that gospel brings joy. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. live on this Monday afternoon, October the 30th, I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Pastor Will Whedon will join us for the 17th part of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Julie Stegemeyer begins our Issues Etc. Reformation Week, a series Paths to Lutheranism, telling about her path from Methodism, and then Pastor Jared DeBleek, he will be talking about his path from liberal Lutheranism. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois, formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of the books, Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands, and he hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, welcome back. Thank you, Todd. Before we get into this, what would be now the 22nd thesis, this is the one I always forget exists. (laughs) I've been talking about this book, The Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel, and studying it for nigh on 40 years from my college days. And I always forget that this one exists. In the 18th place, the Word of God is not rightly divided. When a false distinction is made between a person's being awakened and his being converted. Moreover, when a person's inability to believe is mistaken for him not being permitted to believe. Walther really wants to maintain the binary of conversion, doesn't he? That you are either converted or you're not, and there's no in-between. Why? Yeah, it's very important for the assurance of salvation of his people. And and for Walter, that was just the primary goal of pastoral care, was to make sure that people, poor sinners who had been alarmed over their sins, knew that their sins had been forgiven by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. I once heard a, uh, well, Walter would call him a pietistic preacher, but expressed the same idea. This guy said, you either is or you isn't. And if you isn't, you better get is. <laughs> That's sort of Walter's approach to this is, you know, you're saved or you're not saved. And these degrees of salvation, which the pietists had introduced, he just abominates this whole thing. Like that is not the way that, that any Christian will find comfort by sorting out all the steps by which a person is supposedly to arrive at being finally a true Christian. It is kind of funny. He introduces this entire lecture with a um, 
he doesn't quote the, the, the saying, but it's like clearly in his background here that the road to hell is paved with priests' skulls. And so the idea that that pastors themselves can be roadblocks to people coming to Jesus is sort of what he's getting at. And he talks about some crass ways that that happens with the rationalists who basically deny all the tenets of faith and just preach morality, if they preach that. And then the pietists with their crazy way of doing it, and also the papists, he said, you know, when a poor sinner comes to a, to a priest, especially in those days, he won't be directed to Christ. He'll be directed to take refuge under Mary, and, and her her protecting cloak is going to be cast over him to enable him to stand before God, you know, because Christ is depicted then as, as the stern judge instead of as the fountain of mercy himself. He's talking about these crass ways, but then he's like, okay, but they're subtle ways too, guys. And these are the ones that I need you, you young, you young men who are going out to be pastors. These are what you need to watch out for. And so he brings up this thesis. And I suspect, Todd, that it slips your mind, it slips my mind too all the time, because this particular thesis doesn't seem to have so much of an application in a day when pietism doesn't sort of reign over everything. If people don't divide out the steps and ways that a person becomes a Christian, we're pretty comfortable with the binary. You're a believer or you're not. And that's sort of what we've been raised with and, and think of in the church. But he adds something to the thesis that I think will become really important, and that is that a person's inability to believe must not be mistaken for that person's not being permitted, as understood by God, to believe. Big difference there. So talk about man's inability to believe. Where is that established? When I think of our confessions, no place says it clearer than the explanation to the third article of the creed, right? Where if you drop out the intervening words, we actually confess, I believe that I cannot believe. And that's what we believe. Where do we learn this? Well, we learn this from the word of God in Ephesians chapter two, right? It's a very clear passage. By grace, you are saved through faith and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no man could boast. So all boasting is excluded because faith itself, by which we apprehend and hold on to Christ as our savior and mediator, it's a gift which God gives. It's not an achievement. It's not something you have to scrounge up. And so throughout this thesis, Walter's basic approach at this lecture and the following lecture, which unpacked this thesis, he just basically says, you just need to get out of the way and let the word of God do its work. If you say, I can't believe, you're going to say, well, of course you can't believe. Listen to the word of God. God will give you faith through his word, through the crushing law. He will show you how you are indeed incapable of faith. And then through the gospel itself, he will give to you the faith which he demands. So why did the pietists, and he names a lot of names here, why was it in their interest or their theological interest to add a classification, unbeliever, then this kind of intermediate state, awakened, and then converted? Well, for one thing, it makes them be indispensable for a little bit longer, doesn't it? You know, you, you got to have these guys along the way to actually help you grow in your faith, to help you grow to become a real sincere Christian. And Walter has, I mean, he does give a whole pile of names, but he has a beautiful statement. He says, it's sheer labor lost when a minister leads a person who has become alarmed over his sins a long way for months and years 
before that person can say, yes, I believe. Walter <laughs> says, such a person's a spiritual quack. <laughs> I, I love it. He's challenging. He says, show me where in the Bible you have ever have this kind of approach where, where, where it's, don't, don't think you believe too fast. No, 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 no. You, you need to experience more sorrow for this sin. We need to check out how your repentance really is going. Then we'll see whether or not we can give you the comfort of the gospel. I mean, Walter's like, that just, that's not what's there in the Bible. That's not how it actually operates. So he has two examples that he thinks the, the pietists would use as, as counterexamples, which would be Paul and Felix and then Agrippa, where in both cases— it might appear that these people are somehow nearing conversion, but no longer unbelievers. Yeah, but that's, you know, Walter's like, that's clearly not the case with either of these men. That's not the way to think of it. It's not the case that they were almost there. Yes, in my podcast the other day, I think I quoted the, 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 the gospel hymn, Almost Persuaded Now to Believe. But the key line in the hymn is that almost is but to fail. You know, almost is not to believe. And so neither uh, Felix nor Agrippa, when he was with the trial before Festus, neither of these men end up actually becoming Christians. And uh, Paul, in fact, doesn't even give the the good news of the gospel to either one. He instead chooses to lay on them some pretty heavy law. So he says, by awakening, and there's, of course, many references to awakening in Scripture, Scripture means conversion. Yeah. And he has some passages he wants to. Yeah. Quote. I mean, unless underlined, always means conversion whenever you hear awakening. So he turns first of all to uh, Ephesians 5, 14, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead. Christ will give you light. And he says, well, come on now. This is evidently a call to genuine conversion and repentance. We are to awake from spiritual sleep and arise from spiritual death. Anyone who is thus awakened is roused, not from physical, but from spiritual sleep. And being awake, he's become alive, which means nothing less than that he is already a Christian. And then Paul turns to the, you know, Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy with his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ. So Walter concludes, yeah, and according to this passage, being awakened and being quickened or made alive are identical. Anyone who has been awakened is in a blessed state. He's been translated into a heavenly life by the moment he is awakened by the Holy Spirit. Then he turns to Colossians 2, verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, wherein you were also risen with him through faith and the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So he says, the event described in this text takes place through faith. Accordingly, no one can be awakened unless he has faith. That means he must already be a Christian. And, you know, he's going to bring up that the pietist object to this, that you're making this, they don't, he doesn't use the word here because Bonhoeffer hadn't put it into text yet. But I mean, the, the pietist complained of the thing Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. They're like, you're, you're making it, it be too easy. A person really has to go through some horrible grief and repentance before they can become a Christian. And Walter flat out says, look, you can't prescribe that kind of stuff for people. 
a person may become a real, true, genuine Christian without ever having to experience the great and terrible anguish of, say, King David. Yeah, although David had really passed through these experiences, the Bible does not say that all of us have to pass through the same experiences and suffer to the same degree. He points to Ephesians 1, the sealing with the Spirit, in whom also, after you believed, you were sealed with your Holy Spirit of promise. So he points out the sealing presupposes faith, although it may be a very weak faith, a faith that is constantly struggling with anxieties and doubts and fears, but God does not grant to everyone immediately boldness of faith and heroic courage. In fact, that's a gift, a special gift of faith that's given only to a few. He says, that's the way it is. Many many people are converted who are in fact holding the faith in a weak manner, but it doesn't matter how weak it is. It's not that your faith is strong that saves you. It's who your faith is holding on to that saves you. And when your faith is holding on to Jesus, you are saved. So Walter then, he issues this big challenge. He's like, you just try to find me a single instance in scripture where a prophet or an apostle or any other saint pointed people another way to conversion, telling them they should not expect to be converted speedily, but that they would have to pass through these kind of experiences. His slam dunk answer to this really is, well, he has two from Acts. He points to the Ethiopian eunuch, right? And the Ethiopian eunuch getting to hear from Philip about about what Jesus has done. And as soon as he hears it, out of Isaiah 53, right? As soon as he hears it and he sees water, he's like, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip's like, nothing. You believe you will baptize you. And down they go into the water and, and he is baptized. Similarly, the jailer at Philippi, he was scared, Walter said, because he was thinking he was going to be executed for dereliction of duty, letting the, the prisoners escape. But when Paul told him, no, 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 we're all here. Then he was scared in a different way, and he just wanted to hear what Paul had to say. Tell me, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul doesn't tell him, well, you need to really be sorry for your sins, and let's see some of that contrition come out and all these. Instead, Paul turns right to him and says, well, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved in your house. Beautiful, beautiful promise. He was baptized into Jesus that night. In fact, that whole movement that took place several years later, Todd, where we have a long catechumenate established in the church where people would be becoming Christians for what? Sometimes up to three years. I think that's what's in Hippolytus. That whole way of approaching the faith is absent from the New Testament. Man, they threw the water of baptism on people pretty quick. As soon as somebody said, yeah, I want that gift, they gave it to them. There wasn't any kind of a, of a trial that they had to go through to see how genuine they were. It was the law was preached to them, the gospel was preached to them, and upon hearing the gospel, if they wanted baptism, they got it. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's part 17 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. When we come back, Walter says, consider that according to the scriptures, it is not at all difficult to be converted, but to remain in a converted state, that is difficult. Issues Etc. relies on a small group of faithful supporters called the Issues Etc. Reformation Club. These listeners have pledged to become monthly or annual contributors to Issues Etc. 
and this allows us to budget our expenses more efficiently. Now, there are four levels of giving. The Confessor, $25 monthly, or an annual gift of $250. The Apologist, $50 monthly, or an annual gift of $500. The Reformer, $100 monthly, or an annual gift of $1,000. And The Patron, $200 monthly, or an annual gift of $2,000. Reformation Club benefits include shirts, books, broadcast transcripts, and advertising for confessional Lutheran churches. Learn more about joining the Issues Etc. Reformation Club on the support donate page at issuesetc.org and look for the picture of Martin Luther posting the 95 Theses or call Lynn 618-223-8385. The Issues Etc. Reformation Club. Listen to what you want, when you want. You're listening to Issues Etc. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. This is Kevin Hildebrand, Cantor at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, inviting you to our campus in November for the annual Good Shepherd Institute Conference, November 5th through 7th. This year's conference includes addresses by Brian Spinks, Paul Grimm, and James Busher, and there's excellent music, including a Bach cantata with the Seminary Cantorai and a hymn festival at St. Paul's Lutheran Church. For complete details, visit ctsfw.edu slash gsi. Luther's insight into the gospel message gave him great awareness of thinking errors that contribute to mental health problems. When he began to understand that the righteousness of God is that which is the righteousness that we live as a gift of God, namely by faith, his emotional relief was profound. I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through an open gate. He extolled the gospel with a love as great as the hatred with which I had hated before. That's from the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October, Martin Luther on Mental Health. It's at our website, issuesetc.org, or you can call Concordia Publishing House and order Martin Luther on Mental Health, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest, part 17 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Well, before we leave this one behind to talk about the next thesis, Walter writes, consider that according to the scriptures, it's not at all difficult to be converted, but to remain in a converted state, that is difficult. What does he say that for? Well, because the danger was getting the carpy for the horse there, right? That that they were making it hard to become a Christian. He says, no, it's the other way around. It's not becoming a Christian that's hard. It's remaining a Christian that's hard. He says, we mustn't worry about our inability to produce repentance in ourselves. We must only apply ourselves to ourselves, the keen word of God. And we have the first part of repentance. After that, any at the application of an unqualified gospel that will produce faith in us. All that person has to do when he hears the gospel is accept it. So he wants to make that very clear that it's not hard becoming a Christian. What's hard 
is actually remaining in the faith, when you have to crucify the old self and turn away from sin daily and repent daily. That repentance is not something that's one and done at the beginning. It's something that every single day of our lives that we have to choose by the power of the Holy Spirit to exercise ourselves in the Christian faith. How does Walther get us into the next thesis and what is it? Well, the next thesis comes along on the 37th evening lecture. So we're into October now of 1885. The way he gets into it is that the most important commitment which a pastor can make is that he's going to take his job, his vocation in Christ seriously, and that it's going to be his intention to, as far as he can, by his power, to make sure every soul that is committed to him ends up in the kingdom and not in hell. And that principle, he says, if you take that really to heart, then you're going to be a useful minister of Christ because you're going to be paying very careful attention to the way the word of God is correctly divided. And uh, so that moves him to his 19th place. The word of God is not rightly divided when an attempt is made by means of the demands or the threats or the promises of the law to induce the unregenerate to put away their sins and engage in good works and thus become godly. And on the other hand, when an endeavor is made by means of commands of the law rather than by the admonitions of the gospel to urge the regenerate to do good. So he sees, you know, the error running two different ways at once in this thesis. On the one hand, it's a mistake if you're trying to use the law to produce goodness in people, that's not going to work. That's not how it goes. And so, especially if you're talking about an unbeliever, that's not the way it's going to work at all. And it's not even the way it works, even in a believer, that hammering them over the head with the law is going to produce the sort of life that, that will be pleasing to God. No, that life that's pleasing to God is what's produced in them by the gospel itself. So that needs to be laid on the people who have heard and believed the good news. We need to say to them, here, you have been forgiven in Christ. What does this life of forgiveness that's yours in Christ look like? This is what Paul does in the back half of most of his epistles. He lays out his doctrinal stuff in the front, and then on the back part, he says, so what does this life in Jesus actually look like? And he flushes his out for the people with a whole bunch of very practical admonitions, but they're all based upon the saving blood of Jesus, which has blotted out the sins of the world. Just so we we put a... Uh at least acknowledge the the fine point here. It is not the law that produces these good works, but the law in the life of the Christian does show the Christian what a good work is. Absolutely. Walter would never be one to deny the, uh, can we call that the educative, the third use of the law, where, where we learn from the law that which is pleasing to God, that this is the shape love takes. That's a beautiful thing. But of course, we see that love embodied and traced most perfectly, most fully in the very life of Jesus himself. And that's where Paul very often will, will turn to to paint it. He won't necessarily quote from this or that commandment. Sometimes he does. But very often he'll just say, hey, as God has forgiven you, you also forgive. How does he establish scripturally that it is the gospel that makes someone godly and that it is the gospel that produces godliness in Christians. Well, he turns first and foremost to Jeremiah 31. This is that beautiful passage where God announces, behold, the days are coming when I'm going to make or literally cut a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And it's not going to be like the covenant that I made with their fathers when I took them by hand out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, even though I was a husband to them. But this is going to be my covenant, which I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I'm going to put my law inside their hearts, into their hearts, their inner parts. I'm going to write it on their hearts, which I take to mean, Todd, not just that you're going to know what God wants you to do and and not to do, but that you're going to want to do what God wants you to do. The law will be on the inside, not something coercing you from the outside, but something that is inside of you and that you are aching for. And he says, and I will be their God and they will be my people And they're not going to need to teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, hey, man, know the Lord. They're all going to know me, he says, from the least of them to the greatest. And why? Because I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Well, this is this beautiful passage on which Walter bases this entire thesis. He writes, This precious, valuable text is like a sun that rose suddenly upon the gray dawn of the Old Testament. We see from it that the law was written into the hearts of men even before the fall, but it did not serve the purpose of making men godly, for men had been created godly and righteous in the sight of God. The only reason why men had to have the law in their hearts was that they might know what's pleasing to God. No special command was needed to inform them on this point. They simply willed whatever was God-pleasing. Their will was in perfect harmony with the will of God, and this condition sadly changed with the fall. And true, God, after the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, he repeated the law. He reestablished a legal covenant with the Jews. However, what did the Lord tell them by the prophet Jeremiah? That this legal covenant had not improved their condition because God had to force them to comply with his will. And forced obedience really is no obedience. Accordingly, he speaks to them prophetically of a time when he will make an entirely different arrangement. That does not mean that the new arrangement was not in force, even in the time of the Old Testament. The covenant, so far as it had been established with the Israelites, was a legal covenant. Yet during the time of this covenant, the prophets were continually preaching the gospel, and they were pointing to the Messiah concerning the new covenant which God purposes to establish. He says that he is going to issue not new commandments, but he's going to write his law directly into their minds and onto their hearts so that they will not need to be plagued with the law and enforcements and urgings. Thou shalt do this. Thou shalt not do that. He says, that doesn't help matters at all. We cannot fulfill the law either. We're by nature carnal, and manifestations of the Spirit are not forced from us by the law itself. God says, I'll forgive their iniquity. I'll remember their sin no more, and that is why the law is written into our hearts. That means nothing else than this, that what the law could not affect is accomplished by the gospel, which is the forgiveness of sins. He turns to a couple passages in Romans as well to unpack the very same point, but the clear message of this section really comes down to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6. The letter kills the law, the letter of the law, it kills. But the Spirit, the Spirit who is at work in the gospel, he gives life. And he says, look, if the letter kills, how can it make somebody godly? These words do not mean that the letter of Holy Scripture kills. That's usually the way rationalists and also some of the uh, union Christians interpret them. 
He says, in consequence of this ungodly and abominable perversion of words, these people say, you shouldn't seek mere words. The context shows that by the term letter, the apostle means nothing less than the law. The law kills and therefore cannot make godly. It may accomplish this much, but on account of it, if we quit this or that vice, we haven't changed our heart. So what Walter's after here is the change of the heart, which is only accomplished when you see that the blood of Jesus Christ has indeed washed away all of your sins. When you realize that in the sight of God, your sins are gone and you are set free from them, that changes you from the inside out and makes you want to do the very will of God. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. He hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. We're walking through the final theses of the proper distinction between law and gospel. On the other side, the next thesis. Dr. Stephen Saunders, professor of psychology at Marquette University and author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month, Martin Luther on Mental Health, Practical Advice for Christians Today. 500 years before mental health professionals started to do this, Luther was telling people, be aware of what you're thinking, be aware of how you're behaving, change them so that you can help yourself with your depression, with your anxiety. Learn more about Martin Luther on mental health at issuesetc.org. In the mid-19th century, German immigrants boarded ships to cross the Atlantic Ocean for a new land called America. Opportunity, unknown challenges, and preserving their Lutheran heritage awaited them after their months-long journey. Learn more about the humble beginnings of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in the latest issue of Interest Time. Visit interesttime.org to request your free copy. At Zion Lutheran Church, Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, we've adopted the motto, A Changeless Christ for a Changing World. While many congregations try to market a message that appeals to what a changing world wants, we continue to give a constantly changing world what it needs. A changeless Christ in word and sacraments like the church has done for 2,000 years. If you're in Chippewa Falls and would like to have the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and salvation that Jesus won on the cross and delivers today in His church, please join us poor miserable sinners. For more information, visit cfzionlutheran.com. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Putting Christ back into Christian radio, you're listening to Issues Etc. Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation, along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. 
faithful Christians are facing enormous challenges and uncertainties. Where are we to find our strength? Join us at St. John Lutheran in Sycamore, Illinois, as Pastor Adam Kuntz presents on the theme, Strong Under Pressure, the Church's Life in Paul's First Letter to Timothy. This conference is on Saturday, November 18th. Go to ChristianFaithAndLife.com for more information and to register. That's ChristianFaithAndLife.com. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Part 17 of our series with Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever on the Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel. In the next thesis, he's going to take up the subject of the sin against the Holy Ghost. Why does he do that, Will? I think it's such a terrifying verse for many, many Christians that it needs to be clearly taught on and addressed. It's so odd that you know we're doing this one today because I just literally did it this morning with the school children at St. Paul's uh, Lutheran School in Hamill, where we were reading through uh, uh, Mark, and we came across the, the section where this very passage was being dealt with. And uh, the questions always start peppering. You know, the kids are like, wait a minute, wait a minute. It says every sin could be forgiven, but this sin can't be. What is this sin? What is this sin that cannot be forgiven? So that's really what Walter wants to spend the time of this lecture addressing, because he knows it's going to be something that the hearers of the men who are in front of him, they're going to be struggling with. All Christians struggle with this question. What is it Jesus was talking about here? And so the passage on which it was based is Matthew 12, 30 to 32. This is to use the Matthew one. Yes, I I was teaching on Mark this morning. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So, sort of to cut to the chase on it, Walter says, the blasphemy to which our text refers is directed against the office, the operation of the Holy Spirit. Whoever spurns the office of the Holy Spirit, his sin cannot be forgiven. The office of the Holy Spirit is to call men to Christ and to keep them with him. So he wants to be very, very clear. He's not speaking about a sin against the person of the Holy Spirit per se, but a sin against the Holy Spirit's office which is to unite us to Christ in saving faith. Remember, they were saying that Jesus was doing all the works that he was doing by the power of the devil. And they were saying this against their own conscience. They knew this was not the case. The devil does not go around freeing people from the devil on the one hand, you know, casting out demons. And he certainly is not interested in seeing people's health improve. Uh, You know, how many people did Christ heal? Throughout his ministry, it's very, very clear that he was not on the devil's side. And so when they accused him of actually doing the great miracles he did by witchcraft, I guess we'd say today, Christ says, it just, what you're proposing makes absolutely no sense at all. And so Walter says, to declare a work of the Holy Spirit, a work of the devil, when one is convinced that it is a work of the Holy Ghost, that's blasphemy 
against the Holy Spirit. That shows what a serious matter this is. And there are no Christians that do not occasionally resist the operations of divine grace and then try to persuade themselves that they were only chasing away gloomy thoughts. Does that mean anything else than that such thoughts are of the devil? The doctrine now before us warns us that if we wish to be saved, we must yield promptly to the operation of the Holy Spirit as soon as we feel it and not resist it. For in the next stage, the person who resists may find himself saying, this operation is not by the Holy Spirit. The following stage will be that he begins to hate the way by which God wants to lead him to salvation, and ultimately he will blaspheme that way. Therefore, Walter says, we need to be on our guard. Let us open the door to the Holy Spirit whenever he knocks and not take the view of worldly men who regard these sensations as a symptom of, (laughs) he says, melancholia. You know, I'm just depressed. That's why I'm thinking these thoughts. He says, it's not a jesting matter. Unless the Holy Spirit brings us to faith, we're never going to attain it. And whoever rejects the Holy Spirit is going to be beyond help, even by God. God wants the order to be maintained which he ordained for our salvation. He brings no one into heaven by force. Oh, Walther loves to stress that point. It's never coercion. It is always gift. He says, on the occasion to which our text refers, Christ had just healed a man with a withered hand and had driven out a devil. And everybody saw that the power of God was making inroads into the kingdom of Satan. But... The reprobates who stood by said, ah, Beelzebub is in this Jesus. That's why he can cast out inferior devils. The very action which they had witnessed, the works and the words of Christ, showed that he was arrayed against the devil and was destroying the devil's kingdom. So it was wholly out of reason to imagine that the devil would help Christ in his work. Another thing that Walter does sort of point out here that's worth noting. You can't let the second part of that verse get rid of the first part of the verse because every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Every sin will be forgiven. The blood of Christ really does blot out the sin of the world. But when you fight against the Holy Spirit calling you to repentance and faith and you succeed in fighting him all the way to the grave, you have cut yourself off from the only forgiveness there is in the whole world. So that's what he's trying to especially warn people against. He he does do a few passages on it, but I wanted to read a little bit of the the Luther that he quotes here because this is pretty choice. He writes, By the terms sin unto death, I understand heresy, which these people set up in the place of the truth. If they do not repent after the first and second admonition, Titus 3 verse 10, Their sin is a sin unto death. However, we may number with this class such a sin from stubbornness and in defiance like Judas, who had been given ample warning, but because of his obstinate wickedness was beyond help. Also Saul, who died in his sins because he would not trust in the Lord. But the highest degree of obstinacy is found in those who insist on maintaining and defending their known error. So, Walter adds, the sin is not unpardonable because it is abominable of its magnitude. The apostle had just said, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. 
He says, but it's because the person committing the sin is rejecting the only means by which he can be brought to repentance, faith, and be restored. So Luther goes on, of this kind is also the sin against the Holy Ghost or hardening in wickedness, fighting against the known truth and thus final impenitence. So Luther defines the sin against the Holy Spirit ultimately as a form of final impenitence. After citing from Luther, Walter moves on to uh, Byer's great compendium of theology, and, and there Byer says, the most grievous of all actual sins, which is called the sin against the Holy Ghost, consists in a malicious renunciation and blasphemous and obstinate assault upon the heavenly truth, which had once upon a time been known by the person committing this sin. So it's a sin of apostasy, of turning away, and of turning away in such a way that a person remains perpetually unrepentant unto death, fighting the office of the Holy Spirit all the way to the grave. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest on this Monday, October the 30th. It's part 17 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. We will get to the last thesis having to do with the general predominance of the gospel in our teaching next. The blood of Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. All sin. Listen to chapel services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. Even when we are faithless, He remains faithful. The Gospels report Jesus saying some rather shocking things. For instance, in Luke 14, he tells his disciples, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How can Jesus say such things? What about some of the other more difficult teachings of Scripture? Do you have questions about them? Well, we answer many of these in the October issue of The Lutheran Witness. Pick up your copy today at cph.org witness. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. Others talk. We have something to say. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memorial Press's award-winning curriculum is used by homeschoolers all over the world. Their classical Christian education materials provide everything you need for kindergarten through 12th grade, including books, guides, lesson plans, and instructional videos. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. The weather is changing, the leaves are falling, and you'll soon be setting up your church's Christmon tree this Advent. But there's a problem. Remember, Aunt Mabel's Christmons are from the 80s. They're made of styrofoam, the glitter has dropped off, and they're being held together with toothpicks. Rush on over to Ad Crucem to fix the situation. We offer all the old designs and a whole lot of new ones. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com.
Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're discussing the proper distinction between law and gospel with Pastor Will Whedon. He's host of the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, you're wrapping up a teaching on Acts this week, and you are returning to the book of Genesis on Thursday. Tell us about your Genesis study. Ah, Genesis, we'll pick up again right where we left off. We finished through chapter four last time. So we'll move into chapter five. We'll trace down the genealogy of Seth that's recorded there, all the way down to the story of Noah, and then begin getting into the story of the flood and what all that means for us in our lives today. It is a great section of scripture, and I really look forward to going through it with you guys. Join Pastor Whedon for his study on Genesis chapters 5 through 11. You can listen at your convenience at thewordendures.org, the LPR mobile app, or your favorite podcast provider, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever with Pastor Will Whedon. The final thing that Walther wants to impress upon these young men studying to be pastors in his final lecture, he puts it this way, in the 21st place, The Word of God is not rightly divided when the person teaching it does not allow the gospel to have general predominance in his teaching. What does he mean? Well, he means that the gospel itself must be the most spoken of thing that we as pastors refer to and proclaim. The law must be proclaimed too, but it must not predominate. And by predominate, he really stresses here, it can predominate if if the law is made perfectly balanced out with the gospel so that they're both equally stated. He says that is letting the law predominate too. It must not be that way. The law is always proclaimed in the service of the gospel. Luther loved to talk about God's opus alienum, his alien work. He says his alien work of law is always directed towards his opus proprium, his proper work, which is to forgive, to give life, to raise the dead. This is what he wills to do. And he uses the hammer of the law only to the end that he might bring people to the joy of the gospel itself. And as he's expounding all of this, Walter does pause at one point to just sort of note that the finest messing up of law and gospel actually is what happens, confounding these together, when the gospel is preached along with the law, but not as the predominating element in the sermon. Now, Todd, I just want to get to one point on this. I think what Walter's getting at here, well, especially given that he tells the young pastors that when they go to their first charge— it's like, you really need to make 2 Corinthians 124 the text on which you preach your first sermon. That passage reads, not that we have dominion over your faith, but we are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. And so, Walter is stressing that helping Christians with their joy is what a pastor does when he lets the gospel predominate. Joy should be the key note of the gospel itself. And I always think when I listen to a preacher preach, I'm asking myself, is this pastor witnessing to me the joy that is in the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ? Is that actually animating what he is delivering to us today? Or is the sermon about something else? Have you ever been to one of those sermons, Todd, where you definitely felt scolded, but you never felt comfort it and filled with joy. You know what I'm talking about? Those are kind of like 
the legalistic sermons that he would warn against. But it's not just sermons here. It's in all of our teaching. So no matter where we're to, in the pulpit and at the bedside, when you're in the hospital visiting people, what needs to always predominate in everything that we say is this beautiful message of the forgiveness of sins, which has been won for the entire world by Jesus Christ and which is offered to us fully and completely and freely and which can only be received by believing it. They can't add anything to it. It's already perfect and bestowed by him. So that's what needs to come forth in every pastor's ministry. He needs to think of himself and ask himself, honestly, am I a witness to the joy of the forgiveness of sins? I mean, you can't get away from the very first time the gospel is preached on this earth explicitly after the birth of Christ by the holy angels. They announce good news of a great joy that will be for all people because a savior for all people has been born. This is the good news of great joy is to animate every preacher of the true evangel. He's to hold forth the gospel as a good news of joy for the people he is serving. He has a Luther quote, and I believe it is from the preface to his Galatians commentary. And he quotes Luther saying, in my heart there reigns and ever shall reign this one article, namely, faith in my dear Lord Jesus Christ, which is the sole beginning, middle, and end of all spiritual and godly thoughts which I may have at any time, day, or night. What does he mean by that? Well, he goes on to unpack what Luther meant when he said, in my sermons and writings instead of uh, in my heart, is what he could have just written, for his sermons and writing all conform to the above rule. No one can preach the gospel more sweetly and gloriously than our beloved Luther did. He does not only offer greatest comfort in his sermons, but he preaches so as to lay hold of any doubting hearer and drag him out of his doubts, compelling him to believe that he is a child of God and would die saved if he were to die that very night. That is such a beautiful testimony to Luther's sermons. And I have to confess, I'm 100% in agreement with Walter here. I dearly love reading the sermons. I mean, there are two sets of them out there. We have Luther's church postals and his house postals. The church postals can be a little bit of rough going sometimes. A lot of them were earlier Luther, and sometimes he was just writing as an academic exercise. Like I think the sermon that he wrote for Epiphany goes to more than 100 pages. (laughs) So it's not actually a sermon like a sermon would be delivered in church. It was something that he was locked up at the Wartburg and he needed to write, so he wrote. I think that the better choice is always to pick up the house postals. They are amazing. Our dear friend, uh, I think Paul McCain helped uh, with the editing of those. They are absolutely comforting and beautiful. And most of them are really short. A lot of them were were called house postals because he did deliver them at home, but there were many that he also delivered in church, but they were more timely, if you will. Uh, they, they didn't go on for 100 pages. They tend to be shorter in general than the, the ones in the church postal. But what Luther does in them over and over again is to grab hold of your heart, and he will he will take your heart full of sin, and he will drag it to the cross, and he will show you the forgiveness of all of your sin in Jesus' suffering death. And, and in the shedding of his blood. And then he will show you that risen from the dead, he is the one who is now giving this forgiveness to you, and he will bring you 
with him into his heavenly kingdom. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful testimony. And I can't encourage Lutherans especially, but all Christians, but Lutherans especially, to get hold of those house apostles and uh, read them. If you read one for each Sunday, you're going to be, you'll be amazed at how much more you'll get out of your pastor's sermons every Sunday too, because many times they're going to be informed on the exact same texts, the good stuff. With only a minute, how does Walther conclude this long series of evening lectures on long gospel? Well, at the tail end, he says, well, he's still quoting, you know, Luther, of course, but he he lets Luther have the, 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 the final word. Now the Lord in this passage speaks in particular of preachers and prophets whose real and proper fruit is nothing else than this, that they diligently proclaim the will of God to the people and teach them that God is gracious and merciful and that he has no pleasure in the death of a sinner but wants the sinner to live. Moreover, that God has manifested his mercy by having his only begotten son become man. Whoever receives him and believes in him, that is who takes comfort in the fact that for his sake, God will be merciful to him, will forgive his sins and give him eternal salvation. Whoever is engaged in this preaching of the pure gospel and so directs men to Christ, the only mediator between God and man, he's a preacher of the real will of God. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hemel, Illinois, formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of the books Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands, and he hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, thank you very much. My pleasure, Dodd. Folks, we'll conclude our series next week on the proper distinction between law and gospel with Pastor Whedon's answers to your questions. You can submit your question via email, talkback at issuesetc.org, Facebook, facebook.com slash issuesetc, Twitter at issuesetc, or the Issues Etc. comment line, 618-223-8382. In Hour 2 of Issues Etc., Issues Etc. Reformation Week begins with our theme, Paths to Lutheranism. Julie Stiegemeyer will tell us about her path from Methodism. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Would you like to learn about the Reformation theology you hear on Issues Etc.? We'll send you a pamphlet of Luther's small catechism for free. It contains the biblical teachings on the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and Confession and Absolution. Order your free copy of Luther's Small Catechism today. Just send your name and mailing address to talkback at issuesetc.org.